Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to be able to bring to you a selection of talks that took place at the 1888-2016 gathering held at the White Hart Pub at One Mile End in the East End of London over the weekend of the 5th and 6th of November 2016. The following presentation is by John Malcolm, the author of numerous articles in such publications as Ripperologist Magazine, the Journal of the Whitechapel Society 1888, Ripper Anna, and the Casebook Examiner. He's also authored and self-published the book, The Whitechapel Murders of 1888, a subjective look into the mystery and manipulation of a Victorian tragedy, which is available to read in its entirety on casebook.org, and I'll include the link to his book in the show notes. And now I'm going to turn it over to Jackie Murphy with the tail end of her introduction of John Malcolm, at 1888-2016, and his talk entitled, Sir Robert Anderson's Revelation, a definitely ascertained fact, or another dead end. Um, John also self-published a small book with a big title called The Right Chapel Murders of 1888, a subjective look into the mystery and manipulation of a Victorian tragedy, the confessions of a virtualist. Now, I inherited an extra copy when Alan moved in with me. And we decided that we were going to cull everything that we had joy of. And my copy went to the Salisbury Conference as a blind auction. And did you get it, John? I got it, yeah. John got it. And John was so pleased at the small price that he had to pay for this collector's item book, because you thought there'd be a lot more yeah. interest. Um, so it's well, it's still highly sought after. Uh, last bit about John, besides slumming in East London, John has enjoyed team sports, including ice hockey and heavy metal jazz and space <laughs> improvisation. Good grief! <laughs> On a personal note, I think I first met John in a pub uh, with Paul Kelly yeah. one November, and Adrian Mollis. This is going back a bit, where I got a copy of your book, and I asked him to sign it. I have never, ever, ever met such a humble author in my life, perhaps apart from Mark, <laughs> who was genuinely shocked that anybody would want his autograph on the book that he'd written. And the more I've met John, how true that is. You really are a wonderful man, John. Yeah. So welcome.
Most of this ground has been well covered, and most of us probably have our minds made up already about whether or not what Sir Robert Anderson was written about the murderer is the truth. Of course, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction, but this questionable truth might just be an answer that's more simple than it is strange. Maybe the truth has been staring us in the face the whole time, or maybe it is all addle-headed nonsense. I have a definite opinion, but it's not a popular one. Also, even though suspect-based theorizing is generally received with some bit of contempt these days, I will, unfortunately, be including some talk of a particular suspect. But this should be more about whether or not Anderson was blowing smoke about knowing the identity of the Whitechapel murderer, um, and less about who that may have been. Of course, the specific revelation that we are talking about here starts with a series of articles that appeared in Blackwood's magazine in March of 1910. Previous to this, various illusions were made that the police, or more specifically Anderson, had formed a theory. One of the earliest examples appears in an article written by Alfred Aylmer, uh, actually Major Arthur Griffiths, inspector of prisons, later the author of Mysteries and Police and, and Crime in 1898. Um, and in that book, he actually, that's the, that's the first public's uh, glimpse into the elements of the McNaughton uh, Memoranda. Um, there, it's not, you know, verbatim, um, but it is, it does, does have the elements of the three suspects that McNaughton um, wrote. For uh, one of the quotes that um, Arthur Griffiths has, it says, much public gets this, much dissatisfaction was vented upon Mr. Anderson at the utterly abortive efforts to discover the perpetrator of the Mike Whitechapel murders. He has himself a perfectly plausible theory that Jack the Ripper was a homicidal maniac, temporarily at large, whose hideous career was cut short by committal to an asylum. And that was from actually Windsor Magazine um, from 1895. Um, at this time, of course, Anderson was still assistant commissioner. So a number of things come to mind. Uh, what could Anderson legally reveal to Griffiths? Um, would he have stopped short of stating this as a certainty because of legal reasons, or was it as often perceived just a seed of an actual theory that would later develop over time in the self-delusional mind of Sir Robert into a definitely ascertained fact? To this point in time, Robert Anderson has been looked upon as generally disagreeable or even contemptible and particularly deceitful. His honesty has come into question as well as in his integrity. That was, that's Robert Anderson's father in the last two pictures, too. I had to cut out what I had to say, say about him. But anyhow, um, it is not difficult to find a bad word about the man from his contemporaries. He was a controversial figure then as he is now. It is nearly impossible to find a good word about the man from current observers, though. And this is why his words always seem to be swimming upstream against a strong and prohibitive current. But as influential as these opinions can be as far as character judgment goes, I think it obscures, to no small degree, the path to judgment that is trying to come to pass about the actual viability of the so-called Polish Jew theory. Anderson's contemporaries said what they had to say, but none of them actually refute uh, Sir Robert's claims. They suggest alternatives and they make insinuations, but there are a few direct challenges. The only time Anderson was directly contradicted was in the Little Child letter uh, involving Chief um, Inspector John George Littlechild, who was at one time head of the special branch, and his comments that Anderson only thought he knew uh, the identity of the murderer. And its recipient was a journalist, author George R. Sims. So this apparently direct contradiction, uh, Anderson only thought he knew, from 1914, considering the source who was not involved directly in the investigations and the audience who was a journalist, may not exactly be what it seems. 
maybe Little Child was actually protecting the traditions of his old, old department. I must mention, though, perhaps the most vociferous of Anderson's uh, contemporary critics, Major Sir Henry Smith, who dedicated a chapter in his dubious memoir, From Constable to Commissioner, also in 1910, the same year that Anderson wrote his memoirs. Um, he dedicated a, a whole chapter to Anderson, uh, the criminal investigator. Although not directly refuting Anderson's claims, Smith, who was acting commissioner of the city police during the autumn terror, took serious umbrage with Sir Robert's reckless accusations in implicating the Jewish community and in conspiring to de defeat the ends of justice. The figure of Major Henry Smith looms large and influential today, but his positions relative to that of Robert Anderson in 1888 has risen to the perception that, that, is near, that he was nearly equal. The city police, um, in, as far as actual numbers and actual responsibility, um, was akin to a mere pimple on the huge arse of the Met. Um, but this point is sometimes lost, um, and Anderson's perceived indictment of the Jewish community is often a distortion of what Anderson actually said. A quote, if otherwise insignificant, bears repeating in this regard, and this comes from uh, the Trials of Israel Lipsky, uh, by Martin L. Friedman, and it was part of a translation of a letter in the Home Office files. It was dated 15th of August of 1887. It has nothing to do with this. I had to cut the part about him out too. But <laughs> anyway, this this um, this relates to what Anderson may relate uh, somewhat to what Anderson said, um, and it says in this letter from uh, Dr. Apatowski, which makes me suspicious that maybe it was Dr. Anderson that actually wrote this. You could factor that in there too, and not, not really, but. And uh, the person writing it claimed to be an Israelite myself. I'm quoting this letter um, in full here. The Polish Jews living in London have put into play all sorts of means to save their Lipsky, despite the fact that they are themselves convinced that Lipsky has committed this atrocious crime accompanied by aggravating circumstance, revolting and rare in the annals of crime. But for these enraged fanatics to see hanged one of their Jews by Christian hands is not only dishonorable for them, but also profaning to the highest degree the Mosaic religion, and especially the rabbinical doctrines. And they are able to perjure themselves by the thousands to prevent one of theirs being hanged by Christians, were he the biggest and most atrocious criminal in the world. The rabbinical laws permit perjury in such cases. Yes, Russia and Germany have given England a lovely present in chasing these furious and outraged fanatics, a leprous and consuming vermin from civilized and admired society. Uh, I'm allergic to smoke, and for some reason I can't see my reflection in a mirror, so the trick I'm trying to pull here uh, without those tools is to fool you into believing uh, the truth by making clear the real facts. So I'm prejudiced, biased, subjective, whatever. It's still only a single voice in a crowd of skepticism, and I do understand the context, whether I completely accept it or not. While I was putting this talk together, I wanted to compile the greatest hits of internet message boards, uh, anti-Andersonisms, but that could be a book in itself, and it's another, you know, another thing for another time. Uh, something or someone has influenced the field so as to diminish the words of Sir Robert Anderson and throw grave doubt upon the Polish Jew theory. I can offer a guess or two. To me, it has less to do with an objective analysis of the facts than it does with received opinion, apparently accepting reasonable and plausible interpretations and representations of the facts that have come to us by way of respected sources. 
That sounds slightly contradictory. It's because that's probably true. So let me try to explain. The sources I am speaking of, generally and specifically, are most definitely to me honest in their assessments of the facts. It is by no means my intention to make any of this personal, but judging from reactions to things I have said or written previously, uh, it has been and will be taken personally. Sometimes the sources, our sources are wrong. In the case of the Polish Jew theory, I believe strongly that some of the most trusted, revered, and respected opinions are wrong. The perhaps undeserving scapegoat in this following example is none other than the complete history of Jack the Ripper by Philip Sugman. This is where an often repeated phrase, one which is stuck like a parasite, was given birth. Sugman dives into Anderson and the Polish Jew theory in depth and with considerable detail, but despite his scholarly insights, I believe wholeheartedly that he simply gets it wrong when it comes to assessing Anderson and his, quote, theory. I wrote an article for um, the Casebook Examiner a few years ago addressing many of Sugden's points line by line, um, but without much comment other than recognition of a negative tone. My points were apparently overshadowed by this tone, and my lack of credentials made this effort effectively fruitless. That won't stop me from uh, reiterating these points. Um, quoting the esteemed and influential historian and author Philip Sugden, McNaughton, Aberline, and Smith, not yet Rob. Um, these men must have known the truth about Kosminski. Had the Ripper case been solved, they presumably they would presumably have been only too glad to say so. But by disassociating themselves from Anderson on this point, they demonstrated that his claims to have definitely identified the murderer was simply addle-headed nonsense. First reading Sugden's comments, they appeared reasonable, appealing, and convincing. Since then, my opinion has changed dramatically. I take full responsibility for friendships that have been damaged because of the ways in which I presented my thoughts in the past. I hope I do a better job today. Although time doesn't allow a thorough examine, I would like to offer a perspective. Sugden's work is a classic in the same sense as Donald Rumbelow's The Complete Jack the Ripper was to pre a previous generation. I'm sure it sounds like a dose of addle-headed nonsense mentioning these books in the same breath, but consider this. In the heyday of either of these authors' historians, and historians, each of them wrote what was thought to be the definitive and up-to-date historical perspective at the respective times. Both the complete history of Jack the Ripper and the complete Jack the Ripper are foundational stones and should be part of any Jack the Ripper library, and they should be given the respect they deserve. But it's a new day, and as difficult as it is to confront, there are still errors that need to be corrected, and historical perspective is adjusted to reflect what we know now compared to what we knew 40 years ago, what we knew 20 years ago, what we knew 100 years ago. It is remarkable to note how, time, how spans of time can radically alter perceptions of history, and the gap between Rumbelow and Sugden demonstrates just how dramatically our understanding of the Whitechapel murders can change. And given another 20-year interval has passed since Sugden's groundbreaking, to, and to this day probably uh, most widely respected work um, appeared, we need to chip away at some of the most hardened opinions that have formed over that span. We need to give some thought to previously discarded, but no less likely to be true speculation. We regarded Donald Rumbelow's work as the most authoritative in 1975, and we've felt the same about Sugden's work since 1994. There's not been a measurable shift in thinking in the meantime. There should have been, but it has stubbornly and inexplicably remained absent. No doubt there have been a number of books written in the last 20 years that have been immensely important in keeping us accurate and up-to-date as possible. The Ultimate Jack the Ripper Source Book uh, by Stuart Evans and Keith Skinner, 
the complete Jack the Ripper A to Z, Paul Baig, Martin Fido, and Keith Skinner, Jack the Ripper Scotland Yard Investigates by Stuart Evans and Donald Rumbelow, and Jack the Ripper The Facts by Paul Begg are cornerstones of Ripperology today, and we turn to them often. Unfortunately, rampant disregard for historical accuracy still produces wildly speculative books, and so it's easy to see why the Ripperological community rains down so much scorn on general suspect theorizing. On that note, okay, Rob, your turn. On that note, there is one suspect Facebook that stands alone and also should stand as one of the most important factual works on the Whitechapel murders. Jack the Ripper and the case for Scotland Yard's prime suspect by Rob House looks through Anderson's theory with depth, honesty, and integrity. But perhaps because of its suspect-based approach, it hasn't, to me, received the credit it is due. Not just because of Rob's critical thinking, but also because of the involvement of one of the best minds in the field, research partner Chris Phillips. Although I have been stuck on the Polish Jew theory for the better part of 20 years now, um, I'm trying to be introspective after coming to grips with the inexplicable sense of disappointment that I felt after reading The Crimes, Detection, and Death of Jack the Ripper by Martin Fido, which for some reason disappointed me in his conclusion because that pretty much shattered my first image of who Jack the Ripper might have been, you know, the typical top-hatted, you know, um, shadowy figure. But anyway, I was I was very intrigued at the time with um, Fido's suspect, Aaron Davis Cohen, or David Cohen, whatever you want to call him at the time. And reading Philip Sugman's The Complete History did little to dissuade me. Not because he didn't rubbish Fido's theory, it wasn't even mentioned, um, but because Sugman's rubbishing of Aaron Kosminski and Robert Anderson was quite convincing. It seemed to leave the door wide open in my mind for the crazy 23-year-old Cohen, who happened to perfectly fit one of one piece of selective historical fodder. Swanson's died shortly after Common in Anderson's lighter side. It meant it meant little to me that there were so so many seemingly contradictory assertions in both Swanson's and Anderson's accounts. And along comes Robert House and his hunches concerning Aaron Kosminski. And at the time, I, I believe before he started uh, with Kosminski, his preferred suspect was R.B. LeBruckman, who I don't even really remember who R.B. LeBruckman was. Um, anyway, I was still clinging firmly to Cohen at the, as the best back, suspect for the Whitechapel murders, so although I found his passion in digging into Kosminski admirable, I assumed he was headed straight for a brick wall. Not so, not by a long shot. So why has this definitely ascertained fact been so soundly rejected by historians and armchair detectives alike? This is only one of the questions that will be posed to this group today. There still remains more questions than answers. I'll try to address some of them, and maybe some answers will come from within this room. Today I'll be repeating verbatim many well-known comments by Sir Robert Anderson. I'll establish a rough timeline for the evolution of his supposed theory. I'll also try to humanize this often vilified and complex man. It's doubtful that what I have to say will change anyone's mind, but I hope at least it will give one pause to contemplate the possibilities. I'm not as much concerned with trying to convince anyone that any of Sir Robert's revelations are beyond reasonable doubt as I am concerned with trying to explain why I personally have come to that conclusion, specifically as it pertains to the definitely ascertaining fact quote which appeared in the book version of his memoirs. And that's not to say that I can't change my mind. I should hope that my friends would not be hesitant by challenging these opinions. Anyway, I am here assuming that everyone in this room is fairly well-versed in the story of the Whitechapel murders, but 
please feel free to stop me if I've lost you, or especially if I've made a mistake. I'd be very grateful to spend to be spared from any potential embarrassment. I'm not here as an expert on anything, and I'm not particularly good at recalling details, but I do have some very strong opinions regarding Sir Robert Anderson's words as they relate to our search for the identity of Jack the Ripper. And this is what I plan to spend the bulk of the talk on. We don't have the facts that Anderson had. This puts all, all of us at a serious disadvantage because we are basically just theorists theorizing, which is something that needs to be continuously kept in context. It is a fundamental mistake to approach the subject otherwise, a mistake that rears its ugly head time and time again. We do exactly what we accuse Anderson of doing, forming an opinion and treating it as a fact. I'll try to keep that in mind. And so the timeline begins. The, the first, um, Stuart Evans had a post on the Casebook forums uh, June of 2008 uh, that says the earliest public comment made by Anderson about who the murderer might have been was in an interview published in June of 1892 when all he said was, there is my answer to people who come with fads and theories about these murders. It is impossible to believe that they were acts of the same man. They were those of a maniac reveling in blood. Then came the confidential document in which appeared the first mention of Kosminski. That, of course, is the McNaughton Memorandum. Um, we're all pretty familiar with that. Um, and it's always been a question as to what this memorandum was written for. And I don't have an answer, a good answer for that. The best answer, I think, was also uh, Stuart Evans had a post. Um, and this was in, I think it was in JTR forums uh, around the same time. Um, and it, it, was a, it was a post that was titled, uh, Who Was McNaughton's Report For? And that's well worth looking up because that probably explains, does a lot, goes a long way to explain what this would be. You know, it's still, it's still kind of a mystery, but either way, um, the next mention of Anderson's uh, su supposed theory or, or forming of the theory came um, from Major Arthur Griffiths, Griffiths um, in remarks in Windsor Magazine. Um, of 1895, and in this, Griffith says, much dissatisfaction was vented upon Mr. Anderson at the utterly abortive efforts to discover the perpetrator of the Whitechapel murders. He has himself a perfectly plausible theory that Jack the Ripper was a homicidal maniac, temporarily at large, whose hideous career was cut short by committal to an asylum. And later in Griffith's book, Mysteries of Police and Crime, that was three years later in uh, 1898. Oh, that's, that's when he um, that actually fleshed out the, the um, McNaughton, an altered version of the McNaughton Memorandum, um, which is quite curious considering the memorandum's confidential designation. There are demonstrable errors in the memorandum, and the story gets even more twisted and convoluted in Griffith's book. Uh, the next mention that we know of uh, came from an article in, in the 19th century that Robert Anderson wrote um, entitled Punishing Crime. And uh, this actually ended up being in his book, Criminals and Crime, Some Facts and Suggestions, which he wrote in uh, 1907. Um, and this is the peril to the community caused by common crimes as distinguished from crimes of the first magnitude will be obvious to the thoughtful. For example, a man who murders his own wife is not necessarily a terror to the wives of other men. A man who kills his personal enemy excites no dread in the breast of strangers. Or again, take a notorious case of a different kind, the Whitechapel murders of the autumn of 1888. At that time, the sensation mongers of the newspaper press fostered the belief that life in London was no longer safe and that no woman ought to, be venture, ought to venture abroad in the streets after midnight. 
one enterprising journalist went so far as to impersonate the cause of all this terror as Jack the Ripper, a name by which he will probably go down in history. But all such silly hysterics could not alter the fact that these crimes were a cause of danger only to a particular section of a small and definite class of women in a limited district of the East End, and that the inhabitants of the metropolis generally were just as secure during the weeks the fiend was on the prowl as they were before the mania seized him or after he had been safely caged in an asylum. And those words actually uh, appear three pages into his book, Criminals and Crime. And later in that book, Anderson writes, um, and this brings into prominence the difference already noticed between the way in which the public regard an outbreak of crime and the way in which it is treated by an intelligent police force. With the public, it is a question of statistics, whereas with the police, it is a question of persons. Let me once again explain that I am here dealing only with crimes against property. No one is a murderer in the sense which many men are burglars. At least the Whitechapel murderer of 1888 is the only exception to this in recent years. And that case, by the way, will serve to indicate the difference I wish to enforce. In my first chapter, I alluded to the fact of that fiend's detention in asylum. Now, the inquiry which leads to the discovery of a criminal of that type is different from the inquiry, for example, by which a burglar may often be detected. And later, Anderson writes, it is to this habit of dealing with criminals instead of with crimes that the phenomenal success of the criminal investigation department is largely due. I have no reserve in praising a department of which I was recently the chief and for the excellent reasons that no one knows better than I to whom the praise for that success is due. With a chief who did not enjoy the fullest confidence and respect of a subordinate, success would be impossible. But the best of chiefs can do little more than stand behind the working staff, a body of officers that, as a body, when judged by the double test of efficiency and character, were unequaled in the, in the world. Character I include with emphasis because it is often overlooked when judging of the relative merits of different forces. When I speak of efficiency, some people will exclaim, but what about all the undetected crimes? I may say here that in London, at least undetected crimes are few, but English law does not permit of an arrest save on legal evidence of guilt, and legal evidence is wholly, often wholly wanting where moral proof is complete and convincing. Were I to unfold the secrets of Scotland Yard about crimes respecting which the public have been disparaged, the police have been disparaged and abused in recent years, the result would be a revelation to the public. The next mention was when Anderson serialized, he wrote um, his memoirs, they were serialized in Blackwood's Magazine in uh, 1910, and the, the part that concerns us the most was part six. And, and this was in the uh, March of 1910 issue. And here is where Anderson really opens a can of worms. One did not need to be a Sherlock Holmes to discover that the criminal was a sexual maniac of a virulent type, that he was living in the immediate vicinity of the scenes of the murders, and that, if he was not living absolutely alone, his people knew of his guilt and refused to give him up to justice. During my absence abroad, the police had made a house-to-house -house search for him, investigating the case of every man in the district whose circumstances were such that he could go and come and get rid of his bloodstains in secret. And the conclusions we came to was at the time that he and his people were low-class Jews, for it is a remarkable fact that people of that class in the East End will not give up one of their number to Gentile justice. And the result proved that our diagnosis was right on every point. For I may say at once that undiscovered murders are rare in London, and the Jack the Ripper crimes are not within that category. 
and if the police here had powers such as the French police possess, the murderer would have been brought to justice. Scotland Yard can boast that even the subordinate offices of the department will not tell tales out of school, and it will ill become me to violate the unwritten rule of the service. The subject will come up again, and I will only add here that the Jack the Ripper letter, which is preserved in the police museum at New Scotland Yard, is a creation of an enterprising London journalist. And in a footnote, he writes, Anderson writes, having regard to the interest attaching to this case, I should almost be tempted to disclose the identity of the murderer and of the pressman who wrote the letter above referred to, provided that the publishers would accept all responsibility in review of a possible libel action. But no public benefit would result from such a course, and the traditions of my old department would suffer. I will only add that when the individual whom we suspected was caged in an asylum, the only person who had ever had a good view of the murderer at once identified him, but when he learned that the suspect was a fellow Jew, he declined to swear to him. This provoked a somewhat angry response from the Jewish Chronicle, um, and in an editorial in March of 1910, 1910 um, an editorial by Mentor, who was actually the editor, Leopold Greenberg, um, wrote about Anderson's article in Blackwoods the following. Sir Robert Anderson, the late head of the Criminal Investigation Department at Scotland Yard, has been contributing in, to Blackwoods a series of articles on crime and criminals. In the course of his last contribution, Sir Robert tells his readers that the fearful crimes committed in the East End some years ago, and known as the Jack the Ripper crimes, were the work of a Jew. Of course, whoever was responsible for the series of foul murders would not, was not mentally responsible, and this Sir Robert admits. But I fail to see, at least from his articles in Blackwoods, upon what evidence worthy of the name he ventures to cast the odium for this infamy upon one of our people. It will be recollected that the criminal, whoever he was, baffled the keenest search not alone on the part of the police, but on the part of an infuriated and panic-stricken populace. Notwithstanding the utmost vigilance, the man, repeating again and again his demoniacal acts, again and again escaped. Scotland Yard was nonplussed. And then, according to Sir Robert Anderson, the police formed a theory, usually the first essential to some blundering injustice. In this case, the police came to the conclusion that Jack the Ripper was a low-class Jew and that they so decided, Sir Robert says, because they believe it is a remarkable <coughs> fact that people of that class in East End will not give up one of their number to Gentile justice. Was anything more nonsensical in the way of a theory ever conceived even in the brain of a policeman? Here was a whole neighborhood largely composed of Jews in constant terror lest their womenfolk, whom Jewish men hold in particular regard, even low-class Jews do that, should be slain by some murderer who was stalking the district undiscovered. So terrified were many of the people, non-Jews as well as Jews, that they hastily moved away. And yet Sir Robert would have us believe that there were Jews who knew the person who was committing the abominable crimes and yet carefully shielded him from the police. A more wicked assertion to put into print without the shadow of evidence I have seldom seen. The man whom Scotland Yard suspected subsequently, says Sir Robert, was caged in an asylum. He was never brought to trial. Nothing except his lunacy was proved against him. This lunatic presumably was a Jew, and because he was suspected, as a result of the police theory I have mentioned, Sir Robert ventures to tell the story he does, as if he were stating facts, forgetting that such a case as that of Adolf Beck was ever heard of. 
But now listen to the proof that Sir Robert Anderson gives of his theories. When the lunatic, who presumably was a Jew, and who was suspected by Scotland Yard, was seen by a Jew, the only person who had ever had a good view of the murderer, Sir Robert, tells us at once identify him. But when he learned that the suspect was a fellow Jew, he declined to swear to him. This is Scotland Yard's idea of proof positive of their theory. What more natural than a man's hesitancy to identify another as Jack the Ripper so soon as he knew he was a Jew? What more natural than for, than for that fact at once to cause doubts in his mind? The crimes identified with Jack the Ripper were a nature that would be difficult for any Jew, low class, or any class to imagine the work of a Jew. Their callous brutality was born to Jewish nature, which, when it turns criminal, goes into quite a different channel. I confess that, confess that however sure I might have been of the identity of a person, when I was told he had been committing Jack the Ripper crimes and was a Jew, I should hesitate about the certainty of my identification, especially as anyone outside Scotland Yard knows how prone to mistake the clearest headed and most careful of people are when venturing to identify anyone. It is a matter for regret and surprise that so able a man as Sir Robert Anderson should, upon the wholly erroneous and ridiculous theory that Jews would shield a raving murderer because he was a Jew rather than yield him up to Gentile justice, build up a series of statements that he has. There is no real proof that the lunatic was caged that was was a Jew. There is absolutely no proof that he was responsible for the Jack the Ripper crimes, and hence it appears to me wholly gratuitous on the part of Sir Robert to fasten the wretched creature, whoever he was, upon our people. Sir Robert Anderson um, responded um, with an interview, in an interview with The Globe on March 7th, shortly after Mentor's comments. And this article goes on to state, in an interview with a representative of The Globe on Saturday, Sir Robert said, when I stated that the murderer was a Jew, I was stating a simple matter of fact. It is not a, ma it is not a matter of theory. I should be the last man in the world to say anything reflecting on the Jews as a community. But what is true of Christians is equally true of Jews, that there are among some people that there are some people who have lapsed from all that is good and proper. We have lapsed masses among Christians. We cannot talk of lapsed masses among Jews, but there are cliques of them in the East End, and it is a notorious fact that there are, is a stratum of Jews who will not give up their people. In stating what I do about the Whitechapel murders, I am not speaking as an expert in crime, but as a man who investigated the facts. Moreover, the man who identified the murderer was a Jew, but on learning that the criminal was a Jew, he refused to proceed with his identification. As for the suggestion that I intended to cast any reflection on the Jews, anyone who has read my books on biblical exegesis will know the high estimate I have of Jews religiously. The article goes on to say, Sir Robert added that one of his objects in publishing his reminiscences was to show how scares of him were exaggerated about undiscovered crimes. As a matter of fact, he said, there is no large city in the world where life is so safe as London. If I did not know the care and accuracy with which crimes are reported and statistics are prepared, I should not risk such a statement. In connection with Sir Robert's assertion that the Whitechapel murderer was a Jew, it is of interest to recall that in one crime, the culprit chalked up on a wall, the Jews are not the people to be blamed for nothing. Anderson also responded directly um, to Mentor's editorial, um, and this was only a few days later, this is to uh, March 11th. Um, and this, Anderson writes, um, well, it starts, the, the heading in the paper is the Jack the Ripper theory replied by Sir Robert Anderson, and this is what Anderson writes. 
To the editor of the Jewish Chronicle, sir, with reference to Mentor's comments on my statements about the Whitechapel murders of 1888 in this month's Blackwood, will you allow me to express the sincere distress I feel that my words should be construed as an aspersion upon Jews? For much they have written in my various books give proof of my sympathy with and interest in the people of the covenant, and I am happy in reckoning members of the Jewish community in London among my personal friends. I recognize in this matter I said either too much or too little. But the fact is that as my words were merely a repetition of what I published several years ago without exciting comment, they flowed from my pen without any consideration. We have in London a stratum of the population uninfluenced by religious or even social restraints, and in this stratum Jews are to be found as well as Gentiles. And if I were to describe the condition of the maniac who committed these murders and the course of loathsome immorality which reduced him to that condition, it would be manifest that in this case every question of nationality and creed is lost in a ghastly study of human nature sunk to the lower, lowest depths of degradation. Yours obediently, Robert Anderson. In the meantime, Mentor wasn't impressed and in the same paper um, appeared Mentor's response to Anderson's letter. I have read the interview with a representative of the Globe, which Sir Robert Anderson accorded that paper in order to reply to my observations upon what he had said in Blackwood's magazine concerning the Jack the Ripper crimes. The editor of the Jewish Chronicle has also been so good as to send for my perusal Sir Robert Anderson's letter to him, which appears in these columns on the same subject. With great deference to Sir Robert, it appears to me that he misses the whole point of my complaint against what he wrote. I did not so much object to his saying that Jack the Ripper was a Jew, though so particular of our people would have been well advised, knowing the peculiar condition in which we are situated and the prejudice that is constantly simmering against us, had he kept that fact to himself. No good purpose was served by his revealing it. It would have sufficed that he said that he was satisfied the murder was discovered. As I pointed out, the creature whom Sir Robert Anderson believes to have been the author of the heinous crimes was a lunatic, obviously his brain virulently diseased, so that, that if he was a Jew, however regrettable it may be that our people produce such an abnormality, in that there does not lie the aspersion. What I objected to, and paste Sir Robert Anderson's explanations still do in his Blackwoods article, is his assertion that Jews who knew that Jack the Ripper had done his foul deeds shielded him from the police and guarded him so that he could continue his horrible career just because he was a Jew. This was the aspersion to which I referred and about which I noticed Sir Robert says nothing. Of course, when Sir Robert says that the man he means was proved to be the murderer and then upon that point he spoke facts, he also ignores the somewhat important matter that the man was never put upon his trial. Knowing what I do, I would hesitate to brand even such a creature, Sir Robert Anderson describes, as the author of the Ripper crimes upon the very strongest evidence short of a conviction after due trial. Anderson's memoirs also provoked a response in the House of Commons, and a brief bit from that was reported in the Times of April 20th, and, it's, and, it, and it should be actually it should be taken into consideration. And this is the quote from the Times. Mr. McVeigh asked the Secretary of State for the Home Department whether his attention had been called to the revelations published by Sir Robert Anderson with regard to what were generally known as the Jack the Ripper murders. Whether he obtained the sanction of the Home Office or Scotland Yard authorities on such publication, and if not, whether any, and if so, what steps could be taken with regard to it. Mr. Churchill. 
Sir Robert Anderson neither asked for nor received any sanction to the publication, but the matter appears to me, my, uh, me of minor importance in comparison with others that arise in connection with the same series of articles. Mr. McVeigh asked whether there was a Home Office minute expressly prohibiting the publication of documents of this kind. No answer was returned. Later in 1910, uh, Robert Anderson redid his me uh, memoirs in book form, and it is worth noting that the book begins with, with this preface, which is a biting and affirming response to some of his critics. A book of this kind needs no preface save to express the, express the author's acknowledgments to, to Messrs. William Blackwood and Sons for sanctioning the republication of articles which recently appeared in Blackwood's magazine. If, notwithstanding the author's estimate of these articles, as indicated in his opening statements, he now reissues them in book form, he does so in response to appeals from many quarters. It has been pressed upon him, moreover, that they must be of, of exceptional interest, seeing that they were made the subject of a full-dress debate in Parliament, and that, too, at a time when opportunity could not be found for any adequate discussion of greater questions of national importance and gravity. So clearly, Anderson wasn't afraid of any questions or any critics or anything. I think, in reverse, probably the members of parliament were more afraid of what Anderson could have said had they pushed the matter forward. Um, and after discussing his appointment of the position of assistant commissioner and his subsequent holiday, Anderson continues. The second of the crimes known as the Whitechapel murders was committed the night before I took office and the third occurred the night of the day on which I left London. The newspaper soon began to comment on my absence and letters from Whitehall decided me to, to spend the last week of my holiday in Paris that I might be in touch with my office. On the night of the on my arrival in the French capital, two more victims fell to the knife of the murder fiend, and next day's post brought me an urgent appeal for Mr. Matthews to return to London, and of course I complied. On my return, I found the Jack the Ripper scare in full swing. When the stolid English go in for a scare, they take leave of all moderation and common sense. If nonsense were solid, the nonsense that was talked and written about these murders would sink a dreadnought. The subject is an unsavory one, and I must write, it, write about it with reserve. But it is enough to say that the wretched victims belong to a very small class of degraded women who frequent the East End streets after midnight in hope of inveiling belated drunkards or men as degraded as themselves. I spent the day of my return to town and half the following night in reinvestigating the whole case, and next day I had a long conference on the subject with the Secretary of State and the Chief Commissioner of Police. We hold you responsible to find the murderer, was Mr. Matthews greeting to me. My answer was to decline the responsibility. I hold myself responsible, he said, to take all legitimate means to find him. But I went on to say that the measures I found in operation were, in my opinion, wholly indefensible and scandalous. For those wretched women were plying their trade under definite police protection. Let the police of that district, I urge, receive orders to arrest every known street woman found on the prowl after midnight, or else let us warn them that the police will not protect them. Though the former course would have been merciful to the very small class of women affected by it, it was deemed too drastic, and I fell back on the second. However the fact may be explained, it is a fact that no other street murder occurred in the Jack the Ripper series. In a footnote, Anderson writes, I am here assuming that the murder of Alice McKenzie on 17th of July was by another hand. I was absent from London when it occurred, but the chief commissioner investigated the case on the spot and decided it was an ordinary murder and not the work of a sexual maniac. 
and the popular and the popular case of December 1888 was a death from natural causes, and but for the Jack the Ripper scare, no one would have thought of suggesting that it was a homicide. The last and most horrible of that maniac's crime was committed in a house in Miller's Court on the 9th November, and the, and the circumstances of that crime disposed of all the theories of the amateur Sherlock Holmeses of that date. And not to let his comments in Blackwards go unnoticed, he made a few changes to the original text. He elevated the part where he mentions the witness identification um, from footnote to part of the body, alters it slightly, and then hammers home his conviction. Having regard, this is Anderson continuing, having regard to the interest attaching to this case, I am almost tempted to disclose the identity of the murderer and of the pressman who wrote the letter above referred to, above referred to. But no public benefit would result from such a course, and the traditions of my old department would suffer. I will merely add that the only person who had ever had a good view of the murderer unhesitatingly identified the suspect the instant he was confronted with him, but he refused to give evidence against him. And then, in saying that he was a Polish Jew, I am merely stating a definitely ascertained fact, and my words are meant to specify race, not religion, for it would outrage all religious sentiments to talk of the religion of a loathsome creature whose utterly unmentionable vices reduced him to a lower level than that of the brute. He also changed the previous comment, low-class Jews, to certain low-class Polish Jews and removed the phrase, when the individual whom we suspected was caged in asylum. We shall leave that can of worms for another time. Um, after that, from the... Um, Oh, of course, we have the Swanson, Swanson marginalia, but we'll save that for another time. Um, and according to the Ultimate Jack the Ripper source, the source book, the next mention of theories appeared in the People of Sunday, 9th, June 1912, in a series of articles entitled Scotland Yard and Its Secrets by Hargrave L. Adam. This article goes on. A great deal of mystery still hangs about these horrible Ripper outrages, although in a letter which I have just received from Sir Robert Anderson, he intimates that the police knew well enough at the time who the miscreant was, although, unfortunately, they had not legal evidence to warrant them laying hands upon him. This follows the general timeline of the evolutions of Robert Anderson's supposed theory. Um, Sir Robert Anderson, a source analysis by Paul Begg, an article which appeared in Ripperologist number 100 in February of 2009, explores this timeline, and I would agree for the most part in his conclusions. I have, of course, I have a few issues with that too, but. But from here it makes for a very foggy path towards figuring out whether or not we can rely on Anderson's testimony. Something that continuously needs to be reiterated is the fact that Anderson was a trained lawyer and probably in one of the better positions as solicitor slash policeman slash government official slash secret service agent to understand and manipulate the law in potentially advantageous ways, professionally and or personally. He was obviously trusted with sensitive and important matters on many different levels, and obviously he served as assistant commissioner for 13 years, serving under three <coughs> different chief commissioners. And it's not Anderson's scant evidence, it's the scant evidence that he's left us with. This is no accident, and it's no accident that we haven't been able to make heads or tails of this scant evidence. Some of the contradictions could quite possibly be by design, and it's not about vast conspiracies, it's about what can be said and what can't be said. Either I said too much or I said too little sums it up perfectly. There were restrictions at the time about the release of information, and there are still worse restrictions years after the events. There are contradictions or mistakes in the McNaughton papers, the Swanson marginalia, and also other reminiscences that, like that of Cox and Sager, etc. 
if we are considering you know, other sources. Do we see a pattern there? I, I find it likely that there are instances of deliberate misinformation, not necessarily meant to hide the truth, but more so to protect it. There are several reasons why this needs to be considered. The fact that, as no one was charged, any accusations, direct or indirect, could be potentially damaging, slanderous, or counterproductive. But we don't often give enough credit to those who are in the best positions to know all of the details. Anderson's qualifications were collectively unique, and it seems unlikely that there was anyone in a better position to contemplate and access the facts in their entirety. There are arguments to the contrary, of course, but they, will, they all somewhat ring hollow to me and I've considered a few of them. And briefly, in, in closing, I would like to examine, very briefly, the curious case of Aaron Mordka Kuzminski. It has been reasonably established that a man by the name of Aaron Kuzminski was an authentic suspect in the Whitechapel murders. But just, just because Kuzminski was named in the McNaughton Memorandum, or Kuzminski was penciled in as a suspect by Donald Swanson in the letter side of my official life, or he was deemed insane, or that he lived, or at least had close relatives living at various locations right at the center of their crimes, or just because his family had to make multiple efforts to have him committed, or that his brother, with whom it is reasonable to assume he had been residing, pulled his daughter out of the Burner Street School and moved out of the neighborhood shortly after the double, double event and subsequent Batty Street Lodger affair, or because he was, or, or because he is buried under a different name than his mother and siblings in a different cemetery, or that he fits multiple criteria, not only mentioned by Anderson, McNaughton, Henry Cox, Thomas Bond, etc., but also which has, but that which has been compiled by the pioneers of the FBI's modern criminal offender profiling program. No time to debate the merits of that here doesn't make Aaron Kuzminski guilty. It didn't then and it doesn't now. But add up every scrap of legitimate consideration of all other Ripper suspects and compare it to the circumstantial coincidences that continue to arise with Kuzminski. Uh, his brother Wolf's 1882 residence right next door to the International Working Men's Club at 38 Burner Street, or Wolf's 1888 residence in Providence Street, which is just around the corner and between Burner Street and Batty Street. And Aaron Kuzminski dwarfs every other suspect. The arguments against Kuzminski are manifest, um, but suspiciously weak. Do we really want to know who Jack the Ripper was? If we do, the answer was pro has probably been there all along. <coughs> or, more on Kuzminski, Lipsky. It was likely that Aaron was still living in Burner Street or Providence Street at the time of the murders. Uh, the murder of Miriam Angel by Israel Lipsky in Batty Street in 1887, or at very least his brother, the brother in whom his care Aaron was later released after the first trip to the workhouse, probably the same brother who appeared in court to support Aaron for his appearance on the unmuzzled dog charge in 1889, and the brother who would later serve time for receiving stolen property. This could explain the differentiation between the successful sweater, older brother Isaac, and the low-class criminal element. Who be, and, and as far as Aaron Kuzminski goes, who better to be acquainted with the anti-Semitic taunt of Lipsky? That event, the Lipsky murder, may have fueled hostility or maybe even an, been an inspiration for, for one who may be unhinged enough to commence a murderous career of his own. Maybe, maybe not. Just saying. Maybe Aaron broke the unwritten code, don't shit where you eat, by murdering Elizabeth Stride, practically on, on his own doorstep. Maybe with that, he realized he probably made a mistake that would cost him his freedom, only adding to his twisted anger and alienation. Aaron 
Kaminsky didn't seem plausible after reading Bruce Haley's Jack the Ripper, uh, The Simple Truth, or Martin Fido's The Crimes Detected and Death and Detection of, didn't seem plausible after reading Donald Rumbelow's book, and especially after reading Philip Sugman's The Complete History of Jack the Ripper. He seems not only plausible now, he virtually stands alone. Was Anderson telling it like it was? My money is on yeah, definitely. Was Aaron Kosminski the Whitechapel murderer? Not quite as sure, but 72% for me. There are, obvi there are obvious difficulties. It was 65 last night at 72 now. <laughs> there are obvious difficulties reconciling Aaron Kosminski, the Swanson marginalia um, died shortly after, um, but none to my thinking that can't be resolved by simple, if currently obscure, explanations. There still remains more questions than answers. The cumulative henpecks in the end leave scratches up and down the Polish Jew theory, but they don't leave much of a dent. That's all I got for you. And that was John Malcolm with Sir Robert's Revelation, a definitely ascertained fact or another dead end. I thank John for allowing Rippercast to release his talk from the 1888-2016 gathering, and I'll attempt to get him on the podcast as a guest someday, as it's a crime he has not been on before. I have only myself to blame. And I would also like to give a huge thank you to Mark Ripper, Jackie Murphy, and Robert Anderson for making this event and the recordings of it all possible. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by the website casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations on Jack the Ripper and Victorian and Edwardian true crime. If you have any questions or comments about our programs, feel free to find us on Facebook or Twitter simply by searching for RipperCast. I would like to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time.